Okay, so we've seen uh, in our time together up to this point uh, what evangelism is. We spent the first week just trying to define that. And essentially what we said is evangelism, very simply stated, is the action of telling people the gospel. And we looked at, as a church, how, are we, how we are to be committed to praying for opportunities, taking opportunities, and making opportunities to talk with others about the gospel message. And that message centers in on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is, who is Jesus? If we get that wrong, or if we fail to communicate that correctly, we've missed the gospel entirely. Okay? So we want to make sure that we understand that. Before we start on that, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning pertaining to who Jesus is and therefore what he's accomplished. And the danger here is for you to think that you need to know and be able to explain every one of these points each time you talk to someone about him. Okay? You'll be like, man, how am I going to remember all this if I engage in, in, a, in a conversation? So let me just say that that's not what I want this lesson to be about. I, what, what I really want to kind of see happen is for your evangelism toolbox to be added to this morning, okay? So I, I put that in those terms so you can think through, when I'm engaging with a, a, a person over here, there may be certain aspects that I need to talk to them specifically about the Lord. There may be other aspects that they're already familiar with and that they already know, okay? So you want to have everything in your toolbox, right, when you get to the job site, so to speak, so that you're prepared for whatever's before you, okay? And if you've ever done anything like that, you know that typically you don't pull out every tool in the toolbox, but you have it there in case you need it. That's what I hope for this session this morning, is that these things just add to that evangelistic toolbox and help you to be equipped and with an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished so that you're prepared in whatever situation or conversation you find yourself in be able to think through these points and apply them to your situation. Uh, the second thing that I want to mention about this session is that it's not exhaustive. I'm going to say a lot about what the Lord is and what he has done, but I'm not going to say everything, okay? That's what Desmond and Rick are covering in Christology over in the other, <laughs> the other class. Um, so there's going to be other passages that you probably think of, of, oh, this would be a really good one as well. Feel free to share those. Uh, people are going to add that to their notes. So again, this isn't exhaustive, but I think it's sufficient to, uh, to help you out with uh, becoming more equipped to, to know who Jesus is and to talk to people about him. So with that said, before we look at the scripture and who it reveals Jesus truly to be, let me ask this. What are some common responses to the question, who is Jesus, from the unbelieving community? So maybe you can think about your own conversations that you've had. Okay? When you bring up the term Jesus, or when you talk about the person of Jesus, what are some things that the unbelieving community is saying about him, who he is? Good person. Good. Very good, right? He's a good person. He was a moral teacher, right? Very good. Prophet. Right? This is where if you've engaged with Muslims before, right? Well, he's a prophet, but he's not God, right? That's what they would say. Okay, what else? Lloyd? And I know you said unbelieving community, and I would say a lot of times, oh, that's my, that's my dude, that's my man right there. <laughs> right. That's, that's a good point, right? Yeah. yeah, a lot of people. 
the man upstairs or something along those lines, okay? So hopefully when you hear things like that, you are prepared to respond, right? If you're engaged with a Muslim and he says he's a prophet, how are you going to respond to that? What texts are you going to bring forth to help that person to see that he is a prophet, but more than a prophet, certainly? Now, in terms of our evangelism, before we can begin to speak about Jesus to the people around us, we want to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of who he actually is. Otherwise, we'll, we'll simply be adding noise to an already confused conversation that people are, are having. Uh, we want people to be able to walk away to say, okay, now I know not from this person's opinion, but according to the word of God, who Jesus is. So there on your note sheet, the first point there is that Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. What the Bible clearly teaches is that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. Now, understandably, that is a, one of the most difficult concepts to fully grasp because there's no one like him, right? We don't have any points of comparison. You can't say that to somebody and say, yeah, he's just like, no, he's not like anybody else. He's completely unique in who he is. He's 100% God and he is 100% man and he is one person. Now, obviously, throughout the centuries, Christians have sought to think through how this can be. And what we come away with is we know it's true because the Bible teaches it, even if we can't fully explain how those two things are exactly. It doesn't necessarily remove the mystery of it, but the Scripture clearly testifies to that reality. And so that's what we see in Scripture. I mean, we should feel confident that I can show you how the Scriptures testify that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. Okay? We don't have to try to figure out how all that works perfectly. We just have to know that here's what the Scripture teaches and be able to explain why is that important. Why is that vital for us to understand? Why is it vital to understand that if he wasn't, we would have no hope. Okay, So that's what we want to deal with. So let's deal with the first part of this statement, and that is that Jesus is God. Okay, We know from Scripture that Jesus did not have a beginning. If you remember in John chapter 8, he says to some hostile Jewish leaders in John's gospel that he predated Abraham. Okay, So turn with me to John chapter 8. We're looking at a few different passages here. John chapter 8, and let's look at verses 48 through 59. I'm pretty sure that I have all the scripture references for you on your note sheet so that you don't need to uh, jot anything down. But Okay, John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. By the way, this is a really good passage to go to, especially with Jehovah's Witnesses. If you ever run into a Jehovah's Witness, this is a really helpful, helpful passage here. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. How oh, powerful. Okay, now before we read that last verse. It's what, very important to understand why Jesus responded the way that he did in that last point. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the Jews were very well aware of that statement and what that meant. Jesus saying, I am, in their minds, being very familiar with the scriptures, would have taken them right back to Exodus 3, where God proclaims to Moses, when Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And God responds, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. And how we know that the Jews understood this is by what verse 59 says. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew that declaration by Jesus was claiming deity. That's who he was claiming to be. I remember I was talking with a Jehovah's Witness one time, and I came up to verse 58, and I read that, and then I shut my Bible, and I said, now, if Jesus just claimed to be God, what do you think the response of the Jews would have been to him? Oh, they, they would have stoned him. All right, let's keep reading. <laughs> so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus had hid himself and went out of the temple. So it was very clear by their reaction. We knew, we know explicitly what you're saying and claiming to be. And that is exactly what what Jesus was doing. So that's a really good passage to help somebody. And again, you can cross-reference that with Exodus 3. I didn't have that down. So if you just want to write that, okay, Exodus 3 and God's interaction with Moses at the burning bush, okay? Okay, um, in John 1, going on here in our notes, in John 1, we learn that Jesus existed before the creation of the world. And in fact, he was the means by which God brought about the creation of the world. I've got some passages up here on the PowerPoint here. Somebody can read that for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, good. Right? So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? So you've got this declaration of, okay, this is echoing back to the Old Testament of let us make man in our image, right? Because people will say, well, you look back at the Old Testament, you don't see the Trinity. It's like, well, you see shadows of there being more than one person in this Godhead, but the complete understanding of that didn't come until the New Testament, until God incarnate steps onto the, onto the earth, okay? So 
really good passage to help people see. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're going to come back to John 1 here in a little bit as well when we talk about the humanity of Christ and seeing how those two work together. Pete, did you want to add something there? Well, I, you know how the Jehovah Witnesses have eight God. They do, right. And I, I know Yeah, yeah, but but that's but that's a good point, and there are a lot of good resources that you can jump online and look yeah. up and just see how that's. Right, right. We can certainly do that. Yeah, because it's it's not actually that difficult, and when you read it contextually, um, but again, what what we have to uh, rely on is the Lord opening their eyes. You know what I mean? But but you can bring that to them and help them to see why their translation is in error on that. Yeah, the New World Translation would be in error. Well, an interesting question to ask, you know, on top of that, if, if this was, as Pete was saying in, in verse 1, in the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, in their translation, it says, a God. Okay. Exactly. So the, their, their, their point isn't really lessened. Exactly. So now you say, okay, well, your scriptures testify. Now there's another God. So it doesn't take away from your, uh, from your argument there. But, yeah, I'll, I'll look up. Uh, I'll, I'll put something together for us for that. So that's, that's helpful. Um, one of the clearest. So you can kind of remember this. When you're thinking about the deity of Christ, it's kind of nice how the Bible is structured in this way. John 1. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. If you can remember those three, all three of those speak about the deity of Christ. I think I have that on your, but, that, but that's an easy way to remember. You just remember chapter 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. And again, there's more than that, but those are helpful ones to go to. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. <coughs> that's right, I have us, I have us reading, excuse me, I have us reading this. Is it water? I actually have some, thank you. <coughs> Just stubborn. <coughs> ah, there we go. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, and we're not going to read all the Hebrews 1. You can go back and read it when you have time, but look at verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and then watch this, and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. No, no, nobody else can make that claim. Okay? And then notice this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why is everything sustained right now? Jesus is holding it together. Okay? By the word of his power. Now you move down a little bit further in Hebrews 1. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now contextually here, notice what it says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, now watch this, let all God's angels worship Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, we know from the testimony of Scripture 
there is only one that is to be worshipped. And who is that? God, right? God alone is to be worshipped. Anytime you see, for example, um, angels making an appearance and man seeking to worship the angel, the angel turns that person away, okay? Don't worship me. I'm a a servant just like you are. You see that specifically in Revelation. But when Jesus is worshipped, he receives it, okay? For example, when Thomas falls down at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 hold on a second, that's not who I am. Blessed are you, Thomas, right? Right? Blessed are you, right? So Jesus receives worship. Now, notice, go down with me to verse 8. Now, this is the Father speaking, okay? But of the Son, He, that is God, says, so God is saying this, your throne, O God, you see that? is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your, compa- uh, your companions. In, in, these, in this verse right here, you have the Father testifying to the Son, your throne, O God, and then later on you see this, therefore, God, your God. How can Jesus be God and also have a God, so to speak, right? 100% God, 100% man, okay? This is, this, is, this is how you see it, right? So you can't get around these things. I mean, you're just confronted. The text just confronts you with these realities that you have to, that you have to work through. But you see here the clear aspect of divinity. Now, notice this, going a little bit further in verse 10. And... This is still the, the God saying about the Son that we saw it started in verse 8, but of the Son, he says. And then, and, in verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Right? So, I mean, just Hebrews 1, littered with the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? And then, finally, look with me at that passage in Colossians. Okay? Colossians chapter 1. So, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Yeah, Chris. I just wanted to just point out that the last verse that you just read, just to yes. emphasize, that's a, actually a citation from Psalms 102, yes. which is actually speaking about Yahweh. That's right. So it's just something to more emphasize the, the weight of the, of, the, of the text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Good point. Okay, Colossians 1. Can I have somebody read verses 15 through 19 here? I'll read it. <clears throat> Thanks. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Keep going. Yes, please. Through verse 19. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so verse 19 is such a, I mean, all that whole passage is, but verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so here you have God in the flesh. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the Son, who is the image of the invisible God. He is the one through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. Right? All things were created through him and for him, for his honor, for his glory. Okay? Now, when you, again, when you look back at the Old Testament, you recognize all these things. There's one alone that deserves glory and honor and praise, and it is God. Right? And so all these things are being applied to Jesus. He is this, this one. Okay? So all these passages are helpful in helping others to see that Jesus is God. Now, let's think again practically about that. As I mentioned earlier, it's vital for us to understand that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. Why is the deity of Jesus important when we think about the gospel and we think about man's need for salvation? Okay, we'll throw that out to you. Go ahead and... Okay, good, right? We, we need a, a perfect substitute, right? Okay. All right, what else? It's the key because he, he died for us, and it's important for us to show that he is God. He was God, is God. Yeah. And that when he speaks the word of God, he's God. Yes. Know? And that, um, that uh, the gospel surrounds Christ. The fact right. that he's God, no one else is going to make that claim. Right. They're God. Exactly. Very good. Okay. And Paul People. talks about, you know, if you've received a different spirit, a different Jesus. Yes. You have to have a right Jesus to be saved. That's right. Yes. Very good. You can't, there's many Jesus, you know, like you said, if you believe Jesus is man or he's an yeah. angel, that Jesus cannot save you. Yes. Amen. You have the right Christ. You do. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Think about this reality as well. Man is unable to fulfill the demands of God's law. Now, even in our sinful state, we, in our sinful state, we recognize that. But take this all the way back to the garden. You have Adam created, sinless, tested, and fails. Okay? That makes very clear to us that put man in the perfect environment and he will fail. He will not be able to do it. It necessitated God coming in the flesh to fulfill his own law. God makes the law, and then he comes and he fulfills the law that he has made on behalf of man. Okay? Addition, in, in addition to that, God, being infinite, <clears throat> is able alone to exhaust the wrath of God as a representative of man who is finite. Right? I remember hearing John Piper. It was actually a song. I can't remember what song it is right now. It's one of Shylin's songs. But uh, how, how was Jesus able in three hours to exhaust the wrath of an infinite God that would have taken all of eternity to be spent on me? There's no other explanation other than Jesus is infinite. He is God. And that is how an infinite one is able to exhaust infinite wrath 
Okay? So Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. Think of that. Absorbs the wrath of God fully for all the people of God that if left to themselves would have taken all of eternity for that wrath to be continually poured out. It would never be exhausted because they would be finite beings on whom it was poured out. Okay, so vital for us to understand that, that Jesus is God and why that's necessary. Now, let's look at the second half of that statement, um, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Listen, he had and eternally will have an actual body. When Jesus took on flesh, when he became man, he took on a body. And this is very important for us to understand as well. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus was subject to all the same things that we are subject to regarding the needs of the human body? He ate, he slept, he wept, he physically touched people, right? He was fully human, right? In, in every point as we are. And tempted by sin and succeeded. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 to be tempted by the devil. And where Adam failed in his trial, Jesus succeeded, right? He holds firm, but he was fully human and totally dependent upon his Father through the power of the Spirit to walk in a manner that was pleasing to him. Now, back in John 1, why that's important is because after we see this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think I have that in the next slide as well. Okay? And, here it is, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? So here's God in the flesh. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Okay? So he's existing, and then he comes and takes on flesh. That's an amazing reality, and again, it's, it's hard to get your mind around because there's no other point of comparison that you have to it. But the Apostle Paul also points to these two things in Colossians chapter 2. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, so there you have it again. God, the whole fullness of deity, dwells bodily. Okay, God in the flesh. Jesus identifies himself with us in our humanity, but even more than that, he represents us in our humanity. That's vital. Think about this reality. I have this up here for you. Adam is the head or representative of all humanity, and therefore humanity, listen, bears the consequence of the action of their representative. Okay? So Adam represents all humanity. His action was sin. The consequence of that action, death. Okay? That's what humanity inherits from Adam. Jesus, on the other hand, is the head or representative of the new humanity. And therefore, all who are part of this new humanity bear the consequence of the action of their representative. 
So what do we see here? Jesus obeys, right? That's his action. I use the word righteousness there because that's what Paul uses in Romans 5 that we're going to turn to. And what's the consequence of that? Life, okay? So here's one man, comes, is tried, fails, sins, and it leads to death. All who are from him, which is every one of us, have Adam as our representative. Jesus comes, is tested and tried, and succeeds. And what's the consequence of that? Life. And all who are in him bear the consequence of his action. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? We get hung up on Romans chapter 5 thinking, what was Adam thinking? That's not Paul's point at all. Paul's already established the reality in chapters 1 through 3 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and everybody awaits the judgment of God if something doesn't happen. Paul's point in Romans 5 is, think of this glorious reality that one man came and lived a righteous life and through that one act of righteousness and you being in him, you're credited with that. God mercifully gives what is his to you. Let's look at Romans 5 and see how Paul, Paul puts this. Romans 5, 12 through 19. This is another passage that you could just, if, if you were evangelizing somebody and they're willing to sit down with you and look through the scripture, this is a great place to turn to help them to see who we are by nature and what God has done for all who are in Christ. So let's look at Romans 5, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. I'm just going to jump down to... uh, Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's, notice the representative here, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, Adam's, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, there's your representative, So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Man, that that, that text will preach right there. Matter of fact, I did preach it, but... That's a great passage to bring people. Help them to see the representative nature, right, of Adam and Christ and what God has done. And, and notice how Paul is so clear to lay out in here the, the humanity of Christ through this one man, Adam, and through this one man, Jesus Christ. Okay? 
So it just lays the foundation so clearly for us. Listen, if Jesus does not come as a human, we as humans have no hope. For we are left with one representative, Adam. That's our representative if Jesus doesn't come. And God would be totally just to leave us there. We've rebelled against God. We've turned away from him. But praise be to God, he has sent another representative to us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So hopefully you can see from this why it's so important for us to understand what the scripture clearly teaches, that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Okay? All right, let's look at this next point here. Jesus is the law-fulfilling Lord. Okay, on your outline there, Jesus is the law-fulfilling Lord. Uh, you, could, you could substitute keeping for fulfilling, the law-fulfilling or the law-keeping. They mean the same thing. He kept the law for us. He fulfilled the law for us. And listen, this is such a vital point that we need to make sure that we're clear on when we evangelize. Oftentimes, our evangelism tends to be kind of just brought down to talking about the death of Jesus, which is vital for us to understand. So don't hear me trying to minimize that in any way. But listen, the death of Jesus is important because of what he accomplished in his life. Now let's open that up for a minute and talk about that. Why is the life of Jesus so important? Okay, throw that out there. Chris? Um, because he fulfilled perfectly, um, not, not just in passively not sinning, but also actively obeying God completely in his life. So, and yeah. that's the righteousness that's given to those who trust in him. On the basis of Amen. Perfect, right? So just as we just talked about Adam and Christ, right? Adam fails, plunges us all into, into death. Jesus obeys, right? So the, the act of obedience, that Jesus is walking in perfect conformity to his Father's will. I mean, think about this. Every thought, word, and deed of our Lord Jesus Christ was fully acceptable in the sight of God. Isn't that amazing? Never an errant thought. I mean, and in the middle of a sin-cursed world, steps into the middle of this, and never has an errant thought, never speaks an errant word, never does an errant deed. Deals with everything. All these questions being fired at him, all these temptations that are coming to him, and perfectly obeys God. Easy job for Mary. And, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, Lloyd, please. I was going to say also, um, I always go back to, to the, to the uh, you know, uh, thinking of the, the Lord's, Apostles' Creed. Okay. Yeah. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was conceived in the Holy Spirit. Like yes. those two have such tremendous uh, implications yep. for him also coming to earth because now he's without sin. Yes. He's born as man yet without sin. Yes. And then I drive home, which he just did while I'm ministering to guys at the job. Yep. So they, because a lot of people, how is that possible? How can you? Not sin, they just yep. don't get it. Yes. Oh, let me yep. go back this way, let me yep. show you why. Yeah, amen. He doesn't, so vital to understand, he doesn't inherit the sin nature of yeah, Adam. That's right, he's not right? the same line. Pastor Bob, he didn't have a, a local church or a Christian bookstore to go to either. <laughs> he didn't, no, yeah. He was his own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He didn't, he didn't have that. Um, 
So it wouldn't have been sufficient for Jesus to just, as, as Lloyd pointed out there, you want to help people see this, it wouldn't have been Jesus, uh, acceptable for Jesus just to step out of heaven and go right to the cross. Like, hey, this guy Jesus just showed up on Thursday, and then Friday he's up on the cross, right? That wouldn't have been sufficient. Why? Because a life of perfect obedience to the law of God had to be lived for his people. Not for himself, for his people, right? The law had to be fulfilled. It had to be kept. So we have to be careful when we speak about the death of Jesus that we always speak about it in the context of his life because if we leave that out, that's a major component of the gospel that we're we're missing. So we want to help people to see this, that through his life, Jesus fulfilled the law of God that we could not fulfill on our own. The righteousness of God had to be satisfied, not only in the death of Jesus, but by his life as well. Okay, and I just want to point out a few passages that highlight this reality here. Okay, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, but to fulfill them. 2 Corinthians 5.21, why this was good news to us is because we had a law keeper. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, to be without sin, as uh, 1 John 3, 4 said, sin is lawlessness, right? So in other words, when it says he knew no sin, he was never lawless. He was never disobedient. He always walked in perfect conformity to his father's will. And then probably my favorite passage for talking about the obedience of Christ is John 8, 29. Jesus says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. And then notice why. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Nobody can say that, (laughs) right? It's like, oh man, I'd love to wake up just one day and be able to say that, right? Just like my, this one day was fully pleasing to the Father. Every thought, every word, every deed. Say it again? Just give me an hour. Yeah, right, an hour. Yeah, absolutely. Five minutes, yeah. So, right? And, And Jesus testifies this. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Man, there's, there's the righteousness of Christ right there. And, and Jesus testifying to his father's approval of it, right? He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, okay? So talk about with people, help them to see why it's important that Jesus came the way that he did, as Lloyd said, and fulfilled the law on behalf of our people. We have to make sure that they understand, okay, Christ lived a righteous life. And then he died a sacrificial death, which is the next point there on your outline. Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior. Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior. Now, it's glorious that he lived as our representative. The righteous life of Christ is counted to us as if it is ours. Right? But not only must we be given something from Jesus, namely his righteousness, we also need Jesus to take something away from us, namely our sin, right? That's got to be dealt with, our, our rebellion against God. And listen, he alone is able to do that. Our sin, the scripture tells us, has separated us from God. No man will be able to stand and remain in the presence of God with sin on his account. Every sin has to be accounted for. 
the Apostle Peter describes the new heavens and the new earth as a place wherein righteousness dwells, right? Nothing unrighteous will be in that place. And so we need our unrighteousness taken away from us. Listen, this is where the gospel becomes so sweet because you just ponder your own sinfulness, even as a believer, right? You, you think about your own sinfulness as a believer. No unrighteousness will dwell in the presence of God. Man, that, that just puts you right on your face. And, and just like, I'm hopeless, man, if that's, I, I, I can't stand in the presence. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, right? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And listen, this is what Christ has done. This is what Jesus has done for us. So let me just give you a few texts that point to this as well. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but these are good ones that you can bring out in helping people to see what Jesus has done, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins. Notice this, the righteous. There he is, this, this one man standing. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's your hope, is it not? Is that as Jude said, he's going to present me faultless and blameless before his throne with exceeding joy. Right? I'm not just like, yeah, I think I did a pretty good job as a Christian. I'm going to stand up there and be like, all right, here I am, Lord. No, man, I better have an advocate next to me on that day. And one just pleading, he's mine. My righteousness is his and I've taken his sin away from him. Hallelujah. That is the gospel. Okay, so it's the righteous for the unrighteous. Second Corinthians 5.21 that we just looked at. For our sake, here's the love of God demonstrated. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus becomes a sin-bearing substitute at the cross, takes upon himself the full weight of God's wrath. It's really interesting, right? When, when you think about what Jesus just said in John 8, 29, he has, he, he has never left me alone. And then at the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't that amazing? Why? Because you're bearing the infinite weight of the wrath of God for the people of God. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. He's taken all of our wrath away from us. Colossians 2, I love the way that this says this here. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Notice this, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? God can forgive all of that. I'm sure he's not going to forgive me for that. All our trespasses. And notice how he did it. It wasn't just like, I just, I'm going to overlook that, right? No, he had means by which he did this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I mean, think about that reality. There's, there's, and this would have been very much in the minds of those to whom it was written as they, you know, as they do this accounting and they think through how things are, are settled. There's this record of debt. And it's got every sin you have ever committed Every thought, every word, every deed you have ever done. Now you think like, how long is that list, right? There's this record of debt. And notice this, it stands against you. 
And it has legal demands attached to it. And it says the soul that sins shall die. And God takes that record of debt. And he nails it to the cross. And Christ bears the record of debt on your behalf. And it's canceled. Lord, where is my record of debt? It doesn't exist anymore. You don't have a record of debt anymore. That is un. There, there's nothing like this. You couldn't create a gospel like this, right? I mean, this is just mind blowing. How much God has condescended and forgiven His people. So it helps us to see, like, just this passage alone. You can help people to see the holiness of God. There's a record of debt that stands against you. It has legal demands. God is just. He's not just overlooking sin, but he's punished it upon his son at the cross that you might be forgiven of all your trespasses. Okay, so just weighty texts uh, to deal with. I'm going to skip this next one for the sake of time because we're, we're running short here. So let's move on to this next point here on your outline. Jesus is the resurrected and returning king. You know, whenever, this is another aspect, I think, right? How, how things can somewhat get minimized in our gospel presentation. Sometimes we don't talk as much about the life of Christ. And let's be honest, we don't talk a lot about the resurrection of Christ when we're talking about the gospel as much. We talk about Jesus bearing the wrath of man's sin, but we don't talk about as often as we ought to. But when we read the gospels, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we see that each one ends on the high note of the resurrection. We see that each author shows the resurrection was not a surprise, right? The disciples were surprised, but they they shouldn't have been because time and again, Jesus predicted not only his betrayal and death, but also his resurrection. Now, in the New Testament, the writers look back at the resurrection of Christ for a number of reasons. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the point is to remind Christians that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will those who have trusted in Christ. Look at this. Somebody go ahead and read that for us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall be made alive, shall all be made alive. Yeah. That's a great passage right there, right? Here's this representative aspect again, right? As by one man came death, through another man came the resurrection, right? As in Adam all die, you're seeing that happen, right? Everybody's dying, right? Assuredly, in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul says earlier in that passage that Christ is the first fruits, right? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits was the harvest, was the beginning of the harvest, okay? So you would know when that first crop sprung up, oh, this is going to be a good harvest. Why? Because we have this as a basis of what's to come. This is the first fruits. The people would take the first fruits and they would offer it to the Lord for thanksgiving as to what's going to follow in the rest of that harvest. Christ is the first fruits. He has raised in a glorious body and it guarantees that all who are in him, you're coming up as well. Yeah, you're going to go down in the grave probably unless the Lord returns, right? But that's not your resting place. You're coming back up out of that. So pack the dirt loosely, my friend. 
or pack it hard because God's going to break through it anyway. <laughs> you can do all that you want. It's not going to change the reality. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's a great passage. So, listen, the resurrection is really the climax of the good news because what it declares is that the life and death of Jesus were acceptable in the sight of God. As the writer of Hebrews says, death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. There was no sin there. God the Father says, your life and your death were perfectly acceptable in my sight, therefore rise, my son. And listen, all who are trusting in Jesus are therefore guaranteed to be found acceptable in the sight of God precisely because Jesus was. And his resurrection is the guarantee of that. His resurrection is his triumph over death, his declaration that all who are in him will also be resurrected on the last day to join him in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. So vital that we help people to see why the resurrection is important. Now, as we've looked at in the past, after his resurrection in Matthew 28, Jesus declared to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is enthroned. He is reigning as the king of kings. And again, this is great news for those who are trusting in Jesus, right? He's resurrected. He's ascended. He's reigning from where he's at right now. He's sustaining his people. He's keeping them. He's making sure none are lost, that all will be brought home. That's the confidence that we have. But what we also want to see people, help people to see in our evangelism is not only the resurrection of Christ, great news for those who are trusting in him, it's terrifying news for those who are outside on that day when he will return. Just as the resurrection declares justification for all who are trusting in Jesus, it also declares judgment for all who are not. And this is another part of the truth that we must speak to with people when we're telling them about Jesus. When Paul was preaching the gospel in Athens, he put it this way in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. If somebody can read that for us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Good. Notice this. He's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, of this judgment that's to come, he has given assurance. You can be sure Jesus is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. How do we know that? He raised him from the dead. That's the assurance. The resurrection is the assurance that there is a judgment to come. And that's why it's so important for us to bring the gospel to people with urgency, because that day is is coming. Look with me at Second Thessalonians as we begin to wrap up here. <coughs> Chapter one, verses five <coughs> five through ten. Water. <coughs> yes. <coughs> I'm out. Sorry, right, I'll get some in a second. 
The amen. I won't be battling with this. Starting in verse 5. If somebody can read verses 5 through 10 here in 2 Thessalonians 1. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Oh, Second Thessalonians. Chapter 1. Yeah, it's okay. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'm sorry. That's okay. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you all also suffer. Since indeed God considers it just to be paid with affliction, considers it just to be paid with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his light vengeance, and blaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his life. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all that believe. Because our testimony to you was believed. Amen. So, I mean, that, that is a, a great passage. Notice what Paul says here to believers when the Lord returns, he's coming, and it says here to grant relief. Right? to be marveled at among all who have believed. But then notice also, for unbelievers, he's coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Okay, So it, it's amazing when you think about that. Just picture an, a believer and an unbeliever standing next to each other the day the Lord returns. One looks at him. Glory to God, there he is. The other's like, oh no. This is true. So you, you have that picture there. Jesus is coming to be marveled at, to grant relief to his people. And this one, he's coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. So we want to be sure that we, we bring both of those things out for people. Okay, real quick, last point. Jesus is the only way. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You have a lot of texts there that deal with that. But listen, it's becoming increasingly unfashionable to speak about Jesus in terms of exclusivity, right? Any claim to an absolute binding statement of either morality or religion are strongly resisted in our culture today. And as Christians, however, we don't have the creative freedom to accommodate the Bible's message to the tastes of our culture. We must be careful that we don't cave into that. We must tactfully, boldly, faithfully, and lovingly speak God's word to people. Okay, You see the list of scriptures that I've put there for you on your outline. You're probably familiar with all of those. Take a look at those when you have a chance. But what they clearly proclaim is that Jesus is the only way to God. Right? There isn't any other way. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And listen, we must be lovingly forthright as we bring that truth to others. So hopefully we've seen from this session that when we speak about Jesus, as Peter mentioned earlier, we must make sure that we speak about him correctly. Because a lot of people are talking about Jesus, just not the Jesus of the Bible. 
when we speak about him, let's make sure that we're grounded in the word of God as we do so. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for opening our blind eyes. We were dead in our sin and you made us alive together with Christ. We had this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Calling for our death and eternal judgment. And yet you didn't leave us there. You are amazing and we desire to live lives worthy of this gospel. It is astounding. May we never get over it. May we meditate on it often. May it be found on our lips frequently to those who are around us, Lord. We want to be faithful in our proclamation, Lord, knowing the short time that we have on this earth. So please help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Say again? I don't. Actually, it's 1026, so I got to get... I'm sorry. Okay.